Father, thank you for the promise of your word that when we confess our sin, you are faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. As far as the east is from the west, so far have you removed our sins from us. Father, we want to thank you that we are a people who know your forgiveness. And Lord, I just want to declare where you've spoken this morning, where folk are dealing with business with you, that we want to speak release and forgiveness over them and a fresh enabling of your grace for the situations they find themselves walking through. Father, may your grace come to them. May your grace be real right now. In those lives, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As uh, I think you mentioned earlier, um, we're in a series of looking, working our way through the book of Acts. And we got to the point last week where the story ended with those who accepted his message were baptised and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. 3,000 people hearing Peter's message on that first Pentecost Sunday saying, yes, that's amazing, I feel convicted, I want to follow Jesus. So what happened next? Now at this point, Sue Barker should appear on question of sport on a few three crazy scenarios. And you'd think, well, it could have been that, it might not have been that, maybe it was that. Luke, being a cleverer person than Sue Barker, doesn't give us the next story in the story. He gives us a summary. And the next few verses we're going to look at are a summary of actually what happened next. And there's several points through Acts where Luke just takes time just to, to do that, to stop, press the pause button, as it were, and just remind us, okay, now we've got to this point in the story, what happened next? Let's read together um, Acts 2 and 42 to 7. If I can make the gizmo work. I can't make the gizmo work. Helps if you stitch the gizmo on. Thank you, Andrew. I'm there. I'm in power. Um, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. Selling their possessions and goods, they gave to everyone as he had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favour of all people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. That Acts 2 passage is one I suspect many of us are familiar with, one that we often refer to, and maybe it has a kind of slightly intimidating feel to it. I want to unpack it together this morning and realise actually there's an amazing amount of challenge in there, yes, but an amazing amount of life for us. Before we get into the, the passage in detail, let's just take a moment to remind ourselves what's gone on. There's been fairly tumultuous weeks in the lives of these uh, members of the early church. Um, that Those disciples close to Jesus had kind of been through this amazing up and down. They'd seen the guy they were following traumatically killed, brutally killed. All they'd hoped for in that suddenly was ripped away from them. They were confused. 
And then three days later, he reappears and says, I'm here, I'm alive, the kingdom of God really is here, but you know what, I'm not sticking around now, I'm going back to my heavenly father, but I'm going to send you someone who's going to be with you forever, who's going to enable you to do even more than we've been able to do up to now, and that's the Holy Spirit. And then the Holy Spirit comes on that first Pentecost Sunday we heard about last week, And so there they are now, a people empowered in a way they've never been before because they've encountered God in a whole new way with a commission to seek his kingdom and God would build his church. These guys weren't thinking church. The passage we've just read doesn't use the word church. We talk about it being the early church. It's part of my title for today. But they weren't thinking church They weren't thinking some kind of cosy fellowship, secreting themselves away from people around who didn't understand them. No, now that God had turned up as promised, they were seeking to be followers of the way. They were seeking to be those who followed Jesus, working out what it meant to seek his kingdom. Grasping hold of the realisation that the Messiah had come, that his reign had started, that Pentecost had opened up the kingdom with signs and wonders, proclamation and repentance. And with that, this great number of people have become Christians, and they too would have known something of the events of those recent weeks. They'd had heritage as Jews of regular prayer and worship. In Jerusalem, they had a temple as a place of worship. They had homes, some of them large enough to gather in. That was the context. So what did this seeking the kingdom look like? Well, Acts 2 tells, they gave themselves the three things. Fellowship, breaking of bread, and prayer. And teaching. Can I please do the talking and you really help me? Amen. But it kind of helps me if I can kind of work on my words and you can, we can share them later. Thanks. So there we've got these three things. Teaching, fellowship and breaking of bread and prayer. What did they involve? Teaching. Teaching from the apostles. They were concerned to learn from those who'd spent time with Jesus. Jesus is really alive. He's filled them with his Holy Spirit. This thing works. But what did they do? They'd never been there before. But there was a hunger to know what to do, to hunger for truth, how to live, how does it work? What was this kingdom that there was now here, and how did it work? They gave themselves to teaching. Thank you, Andrew, you're keeping up with me. Secondly, they gave themselves to fellowship. Now, the, this is me trying to sort of, you know, do a Mike Bowman or Steve Thompson, teach you a bit of Greek. Um, many of you will probably know the word that used to be used for fellowship is the word koinonia. What I didn't know until I did a bit of reading around this last week was that the root of that word means in common. So when it goes on to talk about sharing things in common, that's exactly what fellowship was. So what do these guys share in common? Well, they shared a common faith. There was a common relationship with the Father and the Son. There was a common experience of the Holy Spirit. They were together. Commonness of heart and of vision. 
They were united. And as we run through what this early church was like, there ought to be going off in us, I think, sort of, well, how, does that, how do we check up against that? How keen are we to be seeking the teaching uh, in the same way that they were after truth? How much are we recognising this kind of one in common thing that typified the early church? Because there was a solidarity between them, a strength that they enjoyed together, the strength that came from the confidence that God was with them. Their togetherness was seen the way they regularly ate together, meals in one another's homes, and meals, as we'll see in a minute, that were centred around the reality that Jesus was with them. There was a sharing out, this koinonia word, also Paul uses later when he's talking to the Macedonian church about their giving, to the Corinthians about the Macedonian church and their giving. And it carries this sense of being generous and of sharing out. So they had everything in common, but there was an intention in that that it would be shared out among one another. To the point where when they saw need, they sold something and they gave to those who were in need. Yeah, some people said, oh, you know, was this some kind of sort of you know, early communism? Well, not in the sense that they still clearly had personal property and they still had homes they lived in. There was a sense of personal stewardship at work, but the attitude was, what's mine is yours. Uh, and yeah, I may have the money to get it, I may own it, but actually it's open. We've got this thing together in common. Property in that sense was communal. One writer commented this passage it said something that kind of struck me as being worth thinking about. Their spirituality was inseparable from their social responsibility. It wasn't that they were sort of two separate things. These things were interlinked together. So that there was a kind of, you know, we can talk at times about justice and the like, but if we're going to talk about justice we must make a special effort so that the life of the church may be an image, however imperfect, of the order we pro- proclaim. I just felt challenged by that, that here in the early church, they, there was no kind of dualism around. This whole sense of their life together was very spiritual in the sense they were devoted to teaching and to worship and to prayer. But it was to one another as well, in a way that they shared all things in common, to the point that no one was in need. There was that, that real sense of justice being outworked. And the third thing they gave themselves to was prayer and worship. Their devotional life, if you like, was rich. They had a heritage as Jews, which meant they had a whole pattern of worship and prayer. For three times a day, a, a good Jew would get together to pray. And they were in Jerusalem, the place of the temple, the place of sacrifice uh, for, for dealing with sin. So this, this kind of mindset of how to kind of do worship in one particular way, but now God's come in a new way to them. They're full of the Holy Spirit, and they're having to grapple with what, what do we kind of know that's in our heritage that we keep, and what do we move into that's new? Uh, another, I think, question for us to grapple with in terms of what do we carry with us that's been good, but what is the new thing that God's got for us as we move on in worship too? Two things about that. They gave themselves to prayer. You know, we don't know exactly what that meant. What we have is insights later on through Acts of them gathering together to pray about stuff in a very specific way. 
particularly when they needed God to turn up and do something because things were going wrong. Peter in prison on a couple of occasions is particularly recorded that the church is praying and Peter gets released. An interesting connection of two events. Um, But this kind of giving themselves to prayer, was this the daily routine of prayer? Whatever was going on, the crucial thing was they were giving themselves repeatedly to prayer. They'd seen prayer as a crucial part of their life together. Um, and just to kind of underline that, it was interesting in our, because those involved in leading mission of communities gathered together the other weekend. I think the thing most commonly in most people's kind of thinking about what do we need to do next was pray more. feels like that would be a good principle on the basis of what we're reading here. That's right. Um, and then the other thing is this, the passage tells us they met daily in the temple courts. And again, we're not really clear what that was, but again, a bit of imagination. Well, it may have been they were going to partake still in, in the old Jewish habits of worship because that was part of their identity at that point as they're grappling with what do we carry forward and what do we move into. But also, there was clearly there was a public place. They met together in the temple courts. And if you've got 3,000 people or some of them gathering, that's a pretty significant number of people who are clearly communicating something together that we are here and we are worshipping God and he's become alive and real to us in a new way and we want to tell you about that. So there was a richness and a new depth to old routines. They wanted to explore every means possible for enjoying communion and fellowship with the Father and the Son through the Spirit. But there's a couple of new things that came through as well, particularly this thing about breaking bread. The meals they enjoyed together involved breaking bread together. They took Jesus' instructions seriously in the way we just modelled this morning and reminded themselves of what God had done in Jesus coming to them and the liberty he brought. They were looking forward to the fulfilment of a kingdom that was now here but was not yet complete. But the fourth thing I think that typified their lives is where we need to use a bit of godly imagination And that's in the whole area of witness and evangelism. The passage we've read ends with this fascinating verse, and God added to their number daily those who were being saved. It talked about everything they did, and then we get what God did. And there's a danger that we at this point can do some kind of weird super spiritual kind of interpretation. Let's get real with it. Folk were becoming Christians on a regular basis. God was plucking them out of their situation and dropping them into the gathering of new disciples? Somehow I think not. People saw them in the the Christians, this new gathering of disciples, these new followers of the way, in the temple courts daily. They saw them getting in and out of one another's homes. They saw them behaving differently, sharing their needs together so that nobody had any any lack. All needs were met. Miracles and signs and wonders were going on. They would have heard about those, surely. Which meant somewhere on the line, conversations were taking place. People were giving testimony to what God had done. It wasn't that there's the church life going on here and God gets hold of people over there and says, I'm going to take you and transport you into this community here. This community here was in, had to be, surely, engaged with the society around them, gossiping, sharing, telling the stories, letting what God was doing amongst them be on display in some way or another. 
so that, as Luke points out to us, God could then do the saving. The saving is done by God, but the life is lived by the church in such a way that it's incredibly easy for God to add to their number daily those who are being saved. And that, for me, I think, is, is, is the telling challenge of that verse. The church was enjoying a tremendous amount of shared life, but it wasn't an isolated life. We used to sing this sort of, well, I don't know we used to sing it, but it was sung amongst some gatherings of Christians, and they'll know we are Christians by our love. And it kind of, in my mind, carried this sense of, we'll just sort of sit and be loving to one another and worship Jesus, and, and people out there will somehow find out about it, and they'll want to get to know us. I think that kind of mindset, which we can super-spiritualise ourselves into, we don't realise what a wall we create when we do that around us. It's not actually a wall that's open and reaching out with people, the good news we've got. It's a kind of, well, we'll just carry on doing what we're doing and we'll see something wonderful. And I think it actually presents a barrier. That actually, we're just being cliquey. We're not actually going out with what we've got. We're just keeping it trapped in here. And people see a clique, they see walls, and actually it puts them off rather than drawing them in. Yet the early disciples were seeing people added daily because they were getting out there, sharing surely the stories of what God was doing and making their life known. There kind of anything insular or cliquey about them. They were passionate to share the good news of what God was doing. So what does that all mean for us? Luke's painted a picture of a vibrant community of people who are keen to learn all they can, share life together in a dynamic way, and express devotion to God in joyous as well as familiar ways. The fullness of life spilled out to people, conversations were had, experiences shared, and God worked salvation in many, many lives. It wasn't a perfect community. Acts 5 makes that clear to us with the story of Ananias and Sapphira that will come to in weeks to come. But there was community life to the full in every respect. And at this point, I'm going to hand over to somebody who can tell you more about life more attractively than I can. Eileen. He said, uh, you do this bit. He said, you can tell the stories. Okay, so I get to tell the stories, hopefully. Um, It's how we take what we are and what the early church was and somehow marry the two bits together, isn't it? Because I don't know about you, but I read that passage in Acts, and I'm jealous. I, I covet to be part of a church like that. But I have a sneaking suspicion that if they walked in here this morning, they might be jealous too, and covet in some ways to be part of what we are. Um, it's not that the good old days have all gone. Um, we've got just as much opportunity. And the key is attitude. Now, I don't know about you, when my, when my children were little and I used to have to discipline them, I quite often used to say, it's not what you're doing, darling, it's your attitude. And they used to go, what? And I said, the attitude is what's going on inside your heart while you are doing what you're doing. And you can do the same thing with two different attitudes. One's good and one's bad. So I think for us, it's all about having an attitude of being church, not doing church. We don't come to church, we are church. We, have to, we, we be church all day, every day. 
24-7. I don't think we can have a day off from being church if we're God's kids. Uh, I don't think Jesus had a day off from being the son of God because he fancied a bit of a break. I had a bit of a revelation this morning because I was thinking to myself of when I joined a church way back in Cote and it was little and everybody knew everybody and we lived in the same village and this stuff was, we really, really did this stuff, didn't we, Steve? And it was easy, yeah, because of that. And I was thinking, oh, it was easy for the early church, it was easy for Cote. And then I suddenly looked at this 3,000 number. I thought, oh, I don't think I've ever seen that before. This was actually quite a big church, wasn't it? And they were still doing the stuff. So it's no excuse to say we've got bigger. Um, What were they serious about? They were a joyful bunch. I think we're a joyful bunch. They were grateful. They were grateful and they were thankful. And they focused on what God had done, on what they had not on what they didn't have, not on what they were missing out on. Have you ever wondered, seriously, honestly, have you ever wondered what you could spend your tithe on if you didn't give it to the church? Now, I bet you have. The front row has, because they're all laughing. I have. I sometimes wonder what life would be like if Keith had stayed in London, head of a nice, comprehensive, on 100k a year, you know, and I wonder... And we can focus on that, or we can focus on what we've got. And I look at what God's done in our lives, and Christian education, and all that stuff. I wouldn't swap a single second of it for the 100K in London. I wouldn't take a halfpenny of my tithe money because of the blessing that it releases. It's looking at what we've got to be grateful for, not having attitude of, if I wasn't a member of this church, I could be doing this. And they didn't have it easy either, because later on we're going to hear about, you know, Stephen was stoned to death. The church was persecuted. Uh, They could have had a lot to whinge about, but their hearts were full of joy because they could see what God had done. I don't think they would have swapped it for the world either. They were serious about things. They weren't playing at church. It wasn't a kind of recreational option. This is what I do on Sundays. It's a bit of a lifestyle choice. It was life and death, and they were serious. So are we, I hope. They had a discipline to their lifestyle. They were intentional. I I don't think they did anything that wasn't intentional. Um. When we get together in our missional communities, we have that opportunity to have, be part of something bigger, but have the small expression of that. And that's where we can really look at what they did. We can really challenge each other. What's our relationship with God like? How holy are we being? Are our actions marrying up with being God's church? How intentional are we being? in displaying the kingdom to the world in which we live? Are we giving opportunity to to God to build his church because we're seeking his kingdom? That's why, for me, missional communities are so important. It's the smaller place, and hopefully in the smaller place, we can't hide quite so easily as we can sort of sit, you know, 40 seconds row from the back on the left and duck. 
They were committed to one another, sharing life together. I think we are too. I've got a lovely lady I work with at work. Stop it, Keith. And uh, are we all right? Yeah, yeah. I've got a lovely lady I work with at work called Tracy, and uh, we we chat about life from time to time. And she's very intrigued that every time somebody in our church has a baby, we provide about two weeks' worth of meals for them. So I don't, I don't have to talk much about church anymore because every time somebody raises it, Tracy jumps in and she goes, you know, in Eileen's church, they cook meals for people and, and they, do, they do city lunches for vulnerable adults and, and clothing and things. She said, it's great. She said, you know, if I went to church... I'd like to go to a church like yours. So I go, well. (laughs) (laughs) But we do do it. Do we need to do more of it? Do we get together regularly or do we kind of wait? Do um, Do you have the feeling that you can't invite anybody around if your house isn't smart enough, good enough, posh enough? If somebody sort of drops around for coffee, do you think, oh, no, this is so inconvenient? Are we self-protective in any way? This is my time, my house, my family, my possessions, my space, my day off. Are we? I don't know. Do we treat our church family with the openness that we would treat our natural family. My kids turn up any old time. They completely strip my place of food like a plague of locusts. They leave me with a large heap of washing. And I love it. Just love it. Are we the same with our church family? Do we trust each other enough? Are we generous enough? I think we're pretty generous people. Are we generous enough? Are we prepared to look at what we've got and sell it if somebody's in need? What about cars? Do we loan our cars? Do we seek to bless, not to impress? I was When I was way back in, in the day, years ago... I was getting a meal together with somebody coming around and I was getting myself in a, in a right old tiz because this lady was a brilliant cook. And God said really clearly, he said, you're here to bless her, not impress her. And I tried to stick with that in my mind. Let's bless each other, not impress each other. Let's share stories. Let's be vulnerable. Let's open up ourselves to each other in generosity. You know, sometimes if you tell a story of something that's happened in your life that doesn't make you look so good because it wasn't a good patch. It can really, really bless somebody else because it's just what they needed to hear that that you'd been through something like that and uh, your life wasn't all perfect and sewn up. They had everything in common. What's mine is yours. Excluding my camera, my car, my computer, my iPod. Fill in the gaps. I I don't mind about any of the above things. This was Keith's list. (laughs) (laughs) You can have all of those as far as I'm concerned. (laughs) 
but I might get a bit possessive about my shoes. <laughs> it was great this morning, this sharing things in common. Lynn Waddington brought me a bag of clothes. It's wonderful. And I know that half the kids in the church are wearing clothes that came from all the other kids in the church. It, it was years and years and years before I stopped seeing a kid toddle into the crash going, oh, that was Sarah's. <laughs> Sarah's 28. <laughs> We've got one of our cars that we keep insured for any driver over 24. Just one of the things we do. So it regularly goes on little trips. And it comes back with scratches and dents and <laughs> bits missing. But it's okay. It doesn't matter. Do we look out for opportunities? Do we really look around? It's really interesting when you look around because God will speak and he'll drop somebody into your heart and he'll say, you know what? They could really do with 50 quid's worth of Sainsbury's vouchers. Or they could do with um, a holiday. Or they could do with filling the gaps. God will do it. It's about not being self-protective for me. If it's a new way of life and you've never done it before, try it. Have an adventure. It's fantastic. If it's something that you used to do and you're just aware that the borders have started to creep in and you've started to think just that little bit extra before you do it, just ask God again to open it all out and have the kind of fun that the early church had. Eileen talked about attitude being that whole thing. And, and the, as I've been looking at the passage, the, the word that we've ignored is the word where the passage started. Um, and that's the word devoted. It says the disciples devoted themselves to these different things. Um, and again, sort of just getting a little bit technical. Devoted, you go to a dictionary, it says set apart, dedicated by solemn vow or strongly attached to. And I don't think that captures what the disciples and the early church were devoted to. This is where sort of, you know, I wish I understood little Greek better than I do understand Greek. But the word has this sense of persevering in, giving your full attention to, giving oneself to continually. They devoted themselves in that they didn't just sort of feel kind of it was important. They persisted. They gave themselves to this stuff. And I think that is, for me, the big challenge about this. You know, the the onion said, have you used to do it? Have you stopped doing it? Have you stopped persevering in it? And do you need to kind of recover again that that desire, that, that zeal for giving yourself to these things? Is it getting... Yeah, you know, well, you know, on Wednesdays I think about, you know, those in my missional community, can I go along? Or are we giving our full attention to these things and to care of one another? And in the way that, as we do that, we are being inclusive, not exclusive. Um, one of the things that I've heard shared recently is the whole thing of, of the extended household, living in such a way that, you know, our homes are open not just to the family, but through that, as a door into the wider communities that we're part of. And we're trying to draw in others alongside that and seeing the life that we're living, what God's doing among us. Let's see what happened as they gave their full attention to things. Um, as they persevered in teaching, in fellowship, in breaking of bread and prayer and worship, 
What happened among them? They experienced godly fear or a sense of real reverence of God being among them. This is kind of holy ground, guys. God's at work. Godly signs and wonders. God was doing dramatic stuff. Amazing things were happening. People's needs were being met. And they grew in numbers, numerically. God did stuff as they gave themselves to stuff. And I don't think we can you know, get away from that. We, if we get it right, the blessing's going to follow. Um, let's persevere in doing good. A truly spirit-filled church is passionate about God and his word, one another and the lost. This triangle thing that we've been talking about, the kind of way of helping us in our discipleship, is here again, you see. Passionate about God, the up bit. Giving themselves totally to one another, the in bit. But passionate about the lost in such a way that God could add to their number daily, those that are being saved. It was a balanced triangle. For those mathematicians among us, it was an equilateral triangle. Three nice equal sides, nicely balanced. But what about us? How balanced is your triangle? Go on, Andrew. Are you... Yeah, I can only do this quickly with three isosceles triangles, but, or thereabouts, but we've got all sorts of scaling triangles here as well, if you remember those days in math lessons. All sorts of different shaped triangles. You know, really up, really in, really out. God's after balanced triangles, folks. You might be lovely human beings, two li- four limbs, one lovely head, etc., but inside you're a balanced triangle because you've got the up, the in, and the out imbalanced. You're passionate about God and his word. You're passionate about one another. And you're passionate about the lost. There's a whole lot that God's been reminding us this morning about how great he is. The immeasurably more that he wants to do in us. But he's also been asking us about what is it that we really desire? And what is it that's actually still getting in the way inside of us that we need to face up to? and confess and repent and get rid of. His love never runs out to us. There's immeasurably more God wants to do among us. He wants us to be a people where daily he's adding to our number those who are being saved. And it's going to happen as we give ourselves to him and his word, to one another and to the lost. Just take a moment as I finish now, because... Really, truly, we can take this away and work it out in the missional community. I've put, I mean, you could come up with your own questions out of this morning, but I've put a set of questions that we can let missional community leaders have if you want to use that as a basis for talking this through. But we can take this away and kind of thrash this through in our missional communities and actually put some flesh on the, on the, the skeleton that I've painted this morning with Eileen. But right now, just so that we don't lose the kind of the moment, how balanced is your triangle? Where do you need to kind of pull something, as it were, focus on persevering in something, you can come back into a better balance from where you have been and be in a better place, as it were, for God then to use you to add to our number daily.